Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Joining another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air on the Inside Lens Network. I'm your host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com, which is a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, nonprofits, and authors looking for assistance with their social media presence. I offer full services, but also training to those who prefer to personally handle their own accounts. I first interviewed this author when her book, Now I Lay Me Down, was released. It's it's the authority, in my opinion, on a high-profile case which kept the nation gripped from 2008 until it was resolved years later. In the memory of the two little girls, Taylor Placker, Skyla Whitaker, Along with a third victim, Ashley Taylor, it, it really should be read by everyone out there. And then on to the next act for Faith Phillips. She's a lawyer, a traveler, an adventurer, an author, and a school teacher who has produced an amazing class of students. Welcome back, Faith. That's Cherokee for hello. Greetings, welcome, and good morning. Great. Well, let's let's talk. Let's paint the picture here. Let's talk a little bit about your background, and then I want to go into um, the present day. So, you were raised by feral hillbillies in the foothills of the Ozarks. Explain how how that all laid your background out. <laughs> uh, that's one of the best things I've ever written, I think, much to the chagrin of my family. <laughs> um, we're from Elder County, which is in the Ozark foothills of northeastern Oklahoma. And it's a beautiful place. It's a little bit of a wild place. And I, I love my home. And But really where we live, uh, the people are just as wild as the landscape sometimes. Uh, and my family comes from, well, we have several different lines, but one, uh, we're descended from the Cherokees who came here on the Trail of Tears. Um, we are also descended from some of Scots. And so we have uh, quite a little mixture going on in our family. And we love where we live. Uh, from the time I was little, my family, uh, we've eating off the land, we go fishing, we, uh, my, my dad and my grandfather, as far as we go back there, we're kind of a family of fisher people, so they, they love to go trot lining, and we catfish a lot, and, uh, in fact, I just came out of the garden, and right before I called you to do this podcast, we have a huge garden filled with tomatoes and peppers and watermelon and pumpkins. And so I feel hillbilly is just really an affectionate moniker I have for my family because we're out here in the middle of northeastern Oklahoma and we love where we live and we have a pretty good time out here. Um, but they they took a little bit of offense when I first wrote that because it makes them feel like, uh, I don't know, maybe the rest of the nation kind of considers a hillbilly a redneck. But they're different. But you probably don't want me to explain the difference. <laughs> but yes, it's an amusing way for me to refer to my family because they're an interesting crew. 
Oh, I I bet, and I I do know the difference. <laughs> I've I've been oh. in, involved in both several different sides of that. Well, what about in, in that in that part of the country? What were the economic opportunities that were um, available to you know maybe you and your family? Well, that's one of the interesting things about Ader County is that we're we're known as the poorest county in Oklahoma, which is pretty darn poor. But growing up here, you don't feel poor because it's such an amazing experience growing up uh, with the creeks and the rivers. And it, there's no better place for a young person to grow up uh, than where I grew up. It's, it's idyllic. It's a little bit like something out of a, a novel or a movie. And it's very inspirational if you're a creative person. In fact, uh, the embarrassment of riches here as far as artists is just overwhelming. Almost everyone has some kind of a creative skill. And it's it's just a wonderful place. Well, how did how did you decide and you know when I guess in your in your span of your lifetime did you decide to become an attorney? Oh, I sh- definitely growing up, although it, we're talking, you specifically asked about economic opportunities, they're not great. So um, I I should have followed up that discussion about how beautiful the place is with, um, there's a challenge here finding economic opportunities. So growing up, my family, I'm from a family of public servants. They are nurses and educators, um, just a um, my grandmother ran the post office, and she also volunteers um, during the elections. And just from a long line of people who serve the community, a long line of servants. And so growing up, I just didn't want, that's not how I wanted to see things. I, I was always had my nose in a book, and I was always very imaginative. And so from what I saw, the lives uh, that my family were living, I I really admired them that they would uh, dedicate their lives to the community and to the people, but that was not the life I wanted to live. I had these grand schemes, even from the time I was eight or nine, that I was just, I told my grandparents, I'm going to bust out of here. <laughs> so I didn't really know for sure what I was going to do, I just knew I had to get out of Ada County. Um, I had to study and get scholarships because I just knew if I wanted to be financially successful, I had to leave. And so uh, I did that, and I got a, a full scholarship, and uh, I even got a stipend to go to the University of Oklahoma. Where, And interestingly enough, I got a scholarship to study petroleum engineering. So I didn't care. I really had no interest in petroleum engineering, but I didn't care. All I knew is that I had a full scholarship and they were going to pay me to go to college. So I got there and I found out that it's a terrible idea to study something that you're not interested in just for money. <laughs> An important life lesson. And and so then I thought, oh, well, what do I want to do? And what can I do to be successful? And I just decided I really loved everything that had to do with political science and the Constitution and undergrad study. And so the natural progression for me was to go to law school. So I went on to law school, and I graduated in 2001 and started practicing corporate law. I'm sorry, I graduated in 2004. And um, I, I got a job offer and began practicing corporate law shortly thereafter. And, you know, how long were you actually an attorney? Because you kind of left that all behind to become an author. Who does that? I did. I literally, <laughs> um, only, I don't, I don't really know any people who have a crazier story than I do, but I, I was really excited to have a, a job in corporate law, um, especially for a, a person like me coming from my background from Ada County. It just seemed like I had my ticket punched, and there was no limit to what I could do. And so I was really excited, and I started practicing uh, shortly after graduation as a corporate. Actually, I worked inside an Oklahoma corporation 
and I and I made sure that they were. I was basically a compliance officer, so I had to become a, somewhat of an expert on environmental law, employment law, um, just to make sure that all of the um, operations of the corporation were compliant, were compliant with with regulations, state and federal regulations. And even just sitting here talking about it right now, I, I'm feeling a little sleepy and bored. So, <laughs> um, I love the job because I, I, I get to work. I, I was able to protect the employees of the corporation. It was um, a, a fabrication plant, and the jobs were really dangerous. And so I got to be a part of protecting the employees, and of course, I got to know all of the employees and fell in love with them. And um, it was a really, really valuable experience. And I stayed there, I think, for seven years, six or seven years. And then the company sold to a larger corporation. They came in and took over. And the move, and so when that happens, when there's a big turnover in a corporation, you get new bosses. And so the new ownership came in, and I highly disagreed with the way they treated the people. They, I felt that they had they undid everything I had put in place to protect the employees, and I just felt a strong moral objection uh, to the to the workplace culture that they brought with them when they came in. And so I resigned in protest, <laughs> and I've been working on books in my in my spare time. Uh, every time I got off work, I would be working on my first novel, and that was where I felt my strongest passion. So the new company that came in and took over just gave me my excuse to say, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go chase my dream. And I resigned and left. That was in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and moved back here to where the Phil Hillbillies live. <laughs> and I mooched off of them for a full year. Um, while I was getting my first novel ready to publish. And it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Also the most frightening one because obviously my motivation to leave Ayer County was so I wouldn't have to worry about my finances. And the decision I made to leave law practice to come back here and pursue a career of an artist essentially was terrifying because there was no uh, guaranteed income, and I had to depend on my family, and I had to swallow a measure of pride in coming back, and so it was really quite a decision, but I don't regret even a second of it. Amazing. Isn't, that's an amazing tale. It really is, and well, in your truth, actually, it's not a tale, um, but then, okay, so you, you've, you've published three or four really excellent books and how I guess this brings me up to the question how did you go from okay because I'm following your progression here lawyer then an author and I know you've taken several adventurous trips to Africa and probably other places as well in between and then you became a teacher how did that come about? That was a total accident. <laughs> I say it's an accident. It it actually was probably in the grand plan, I believe, now. But uh, so the last time I was on here on your podcast, talking to your listeners, we were talking about my third book, which is a true crime novel, Now I Lay Me Down. And I after that third book came out, I always heard that when that when you're an author and you're trying to make it, that once there's this sort of test where you you have to put out three books and write for 10 years before you really make it. Well, all of the signs that I was really about to make it happened after that third book came out. I had um, great reviews. Uh, one of the really the hippest, <laughs> it's funny for me to say hip, but one of the coolest bookstores in Oklahoma a new bookstore in Tulsa, Magic City Books, asked me to come do um, a book signing. And so and I made the Oklahoma bestseller list and all of these wonderful things. And then a filmmaker, I, I had entered into discussions with a filmmaker about adapting Natalie Down into something, a screenplay 
and a movie that he would pitch to Netflix and HBO. So all of these things were happening that made me think, all right, I'm on the cusp and it's about to happen. And so it was really one of the most exciting times of my life. And then all of that fear that surrounded the book started to die down. And I thought, and then the talks with the filmmaker died down and it seemed like he was pursuing other projects and not really interested in pursuing our project um, anytime soon. And I started to feel a little frustrated. And so I just thought, well, I'm just going to write. Um, I'll turn my book into a screenplay myself. Why couldn't I? Um, so in order to just keep pushing my career forward as a writer, I started turning that book into a screenplay. I actually started writing it. And I was lying in bed one morning, and I just got a message on my phone from Facebook, and it was this gentleman from Ador County. He sent a message and said, hey, I think you'd be a great teacher. And it was the principal of my old high school where I graduated way back in 1996. And I'd gone there to speak to the students about writing and um, publishing your own book. And so I just laughed. And I, I turned to my then fiance and I said, ha, the principal at Bill High School wants me to come teach English literature to the seniors. I, and I just said, what a joke. You know, I really did not take it seriously at all because never, ever in my plans anywhere was the possibility of being a public school teacher in Oklahoma. That's a whole other topic that we could spend an hour on right now. <laughs> I'll spare you that diatribe I could really go off on, but um, definitely not interested in um, public education for many reasons, but one of which is that I'm too selfish. I really like um, I really like my time. I really like setting my own schedule. I like being my own boss. I like hawking my own wares, and I don't like having a boss. I don't like the nine-to-five grind. I've been there. I've done that. And um, certainly the salary is not worth it in Oklahoma. Um, but as I said, that's a whole, that's a story for another day. And I turned to my fiancé, and when I laughed about it to him, he it was the first time he had ever taken a job offer seriously as far as, um, as, far as I was concerned because he knew I had decided to give my life to writing books to really dedicate myself to the art of writing books. And for the first time ever, he said, I think you need to consider it. And I said, what? And he said, you know, you, there might be a young lady or a young man in Ader County right now who's waiting on someone like you to kind of show them that you can go up here and share your love for literature with them and become what, and follow your dreams. And he said you could you could share your passion with these young people, and I think you really need to consider it. And I was just taken aback. And then I thought, oh, well, that might actually be true. And so I have a handful of people that I really trust for my life decisions that I consult with. One is uh, my reverend here in Ader County. He's really an amazing person and a servant of the people, and he really comes up with some of the most amazing creative answers of any human being I've ever met on earth. And then I have my worst best friend who lives in Dallas and we love each other. And she has always, he, she's never steered me wrong. And then of course my fiance and my family. And it was unanimous amongst all of the people that loved me best, that I love the best. They all said, uh, you probably need to do it. So I had to consider that I was wrong and everybody else was right. And I, I met with the principal. I tried to talk him out of it. I told him I was not, probably not a good choice, that I had no idea how to be a teacher. And he just was really confident. He didn't hesitate. He really believed that I was perfect for the job. And so I agreed to teach for one year. And that was the, the amazing year that was last year, just a, uh, one of the most interesting experiences of my life for sure. Well, describe when you when you accepted the position. You show up for your first day of class. Who are your students, and how did how was the reception to you as their teacher? Well, it was strange because 
I had just come off of this book tour where I'd had I really gotten spoiled of going to these events where people had already were already familiar with my books and they um they were readers and they appreciated my work and so they would show up to these events and they would be kind of adoring, you know, and they would want to ask me questions. They were intrigued. They wanted to know about the process of writing books. They wanted to know um, about my very strange life. And it was just so flattering, and it felt really good. <laughs> and then I walked into a class of 17- and 18-year-olds in Ada County. They never heard of me. They didn't care who I was. They were just interested in graduating. It was their senior year. They didn't care to be there. They were just ready to get out of school, and um, these students in Ada County and at Stillwell Public Schools, which is where I teach, um, we're challenged because we're the, the poorest county in Oklahoma. We don't have the same funding that the schools have in much bigger districts. So um, the first day we walked in, and I was shocked to find that they didn't have Chromebooks. I had a, a a nephew that was attending Jinx, which is a huge school district outside Tulsa. And all of those students get checked out Chromebooks and, you know, to take home to do their homework. And my students really, I had some that really didn't know how to check their email. So Let me ask you this real quick uh, before we go. I'm, you know, the point you made about this particular district having less funding than the larger districts in the may probably the larger cities. Um, why is that? You would think that you would think that funding would be distributed to the places it was needed most. I would think so too. Um, I think for one thing, I think it has something to do with the taxes in that particular district or area um, by virtue of being the poorest. Um, county in the state, um, and I really I'm kind of ashamed of myself for not knowing better about how the funds are distributed here. But I I think it has to do with the particular district. If there aren't if there isn't a lot of income or sales taxes coming in, um, then that definitely affects the amount of funds that are available to pay for the school. And also bond issues are regularly voted down um, in our district for whatever reason that I can't really I can't really explain, but it happens a lot. There will be a, a bond issue to come up to improve the schools, and for whatever reason, the people in this area um, just a lot of times don't vote for those. And so the school is just extraordinarily challenged in that way, and a lot of our funds come from um, writing for grants, and so that was a lot, that was something that um, – I undertook last year was uh, writing for a couple of grants. And then the other thing that happened was that we were able to, as a class, we were able to raise through a private fundraiser, which you shouldn't have to do, you know, right? The, the people, the students in every district should have the basic tools. And I feel very strongly about this. I, I feel like the Oklahoma State Legislature has consistently failed our public education system, but um, it, teachers shouldn't have to do private fundraisers to get the basic tools that their students need. But, but I, I wasn't going to wait around for the state to do it because obviously if they were going to do it, it would have been done by then. Well, describe, describe your students. What, uh, what, ty what type of opportunities have they had in their lives or the lack of opportunity that they may have had? And what were their attitudes as far as you know, like you said, their senior year. Yeah, we all remember senior year. Let's just skate through this and go. <laughs> um, so wh what were their attitudes towards learning and towards being in the classroom? And, um, you know, how did you, how did you get them to know you and, and what you were there to do for them? Well, when at the very beginning they didn't trust me, and it kind of hurt my feelings because I walked in the first day and I introduced myself just basically saying, hey, I'm from here. I'm one of you. I grew up here. I went to school here. I graduated from this high school. 
and I think they still regarded me with a strong measure of suspicion. <laughs> and I'm still a little bit unsure why, um, maybe because they knew I was a lawyer and um, and I had left for a decade or, or more than a decade and come back, and they just really didn't know if they could trust me or not, I think. And also I think there was a measure of just they just didn't care. And not all of them, but a good portion of the class. And so my first point of order as the teacher was to gain their trust because um, a lot of them really didn't didn't hold me in very high regard right off the bat because I was an outsider, and which came as a surprise to me because I always consider myself an insider in, in Adair County and in Cherokee Nation because I grew up here. It's my culture. But this group of people did not regard me that way, and so I had to go to work earning their trust and proving to them that I really was there to help them. That was my only purpose was to serve them and try to help them um, find, well, really, I just told them when you leave here, you're going to have a plan and you're going to have an action plan on how to achieve your, whatever your dream is. I don't care what it is, but if you have a passion and a dream, I've been sent here to help you reach that. And it took, actually, I think the turning point was uh, in October. They had the homecoming float and uh, homecoming week. And nobody had had helped these seniors get their homecoming float ready. And I was new. I didn't know what I was doing. So I didn't didn't think they cared about something like the homecoming float because they just didn't, they're, their general attitude in the classroom just didn't seem like they were interested. So I called all of them together, and I said, do you guys even care about having a homecoming float? And it was unanimous. They said, yes, we do. And I was shocked because I didn't see that in them before. And so I gave my free time. I came in on the weekends. It was hot outside. We put the float in the um, the ag building and we showed up on the weekends, and I just worked my butt off helping them make a homecoming float. And after that, everything changed. They had respect. I think they really believed that I was there for them, that I would do whatever it took, whatever they needed me to do. And I think they started to understand that I, I really cared about them. And that's when everything started to change. And they trusted me, and from there, there was really no holding us back. And how did you start them into writing and journaling that ultimately became this book, 2020 Visions, that is is written by this class of students? That was one of the first things that we undertook in the class was I I wanted to get to know them. I wanted them to know me. And so we started off with the personal narrative. And to give them an example of a personal narrative, I read some of my short stories out of It's Not That Hard To, where I talk about the times I've screwed up, where I talk about um, the funny things and some of the tragic things, because in that book there are a lot of um, autobiographical true stories. And so I read to them about the time I was arrested. I read to them about um, some of the strange things my family had done and I think that was also a turning point because I I think they started thinking maybe she is like us. (laughs) Um, And so I I could definitely see eyebrows raising as I was reading those short stories to them. And I think they realized that they were dealing with also just a different kind of person. And so after I shared my stories with them, I think they felt really freed up to genuinely share um, meaningful stories from their lives and boy did they ever I took their personal narratives home and I started reading them and I just wept because there were so many stories of tragedy in their lives so many stories of trauma um, and I, I was just struck by their honesty their emotion and I think it was an outlet that maybe they had been waiting for just to be able to express some of the things that they had gone through, even at such an early age. They had lived through 
some really harrowing experiences that that what I would say are atypical for people their age. And a lot of my students were being raised by their grandparents. Um, so that was, and and when I started teaching, I, I never imagined I'd be writing a, a book about the experience. That was not in the plan. But I do write every day about uh, just a short journal about what happened that day. And sometimes it's inspiring, sometimes it's boring. But I try to keep a journal. And as and as soon as I read the writing um, uh, in those personal narratives of my students, I realized that there was kind of a gold mine of uh, genuine spirit in that. And I talked to the students early on because I have a website, readbooks.by.faith, and I told them, if you want your work published, I can publish your work. And so um, I had one student in particular write about the death of her father, and it was just one of the best pieces of writing. I, I was shocked. I, I had no idea, and I told her, I, I said, you have, you're a writer. Whether or not you realize it, you are absolutely a writer. And she had been kind of waiting, I think, for that kind of a verification for her passion, and after that she took off a uh, Today, uh, after she graduated, she wrote a book. <laughs> I mean, she's on she's an author on Amazon now. Her name's Jerry Doherty. So that's one of the greatest things I did for, um, during the year was just help these students really find a voice. And if they wanted to be published, I published them. And um, when the virus hit in March, man, we were riding away. We had the things we'd accomplished through the year that up to that point had just been astonishing. And when the virus hit, the only, the best thing I could think of to help them finish the year was to encourage them to write about what they were going through. And um, so they, I started setting up journals every day. They would read a little bit, but we were reading some transcendentalism and some of the writings of Thoreau and Walden. And so they would read and then they would journal. And what I got back was spectacular writing again. Uh, their talent was unbelievable. And we, and we ended up having this book called 2020 Visions, which includes my experience as the first-year English teacher, but it also includes the journals of all of these young people that I had the privilege of serving for nine months. And what have you seen – from the t from the time that you started in teaching this class and and becoming the teacher of these students from that point to now, what have the improvements been? Have their GPAs come up? Have they expressed um, a larger interest in something they hadn't even thought of before? What do, what are we looking at for the future for these students? Well, they were all seniors, so I don't, I don't know if I don't know about the GPA thing, but I do know for sure that um, some of their paths changed, some of their plans changed. Um, I, I'll just give you one example. Uh, but we we did a podcast that ended up winning um, a contest in, at National Public Radio. There were over 2,000 entries, and the podcast that my students made about our little town ended up being chosen as one of the finalists. And to do this podcast, the students researched an article about our town that basically said that our town is a death capital. And they broke off into six or seven different groups of issues that that article identified as problems that our community was facing. And they started researching. So it ranged from poverty to drug addiction and access to nutrition, healthcare, all of these different environmental issues. Um, and one of the students really latched onto this. I mean, everybody was interested. They were all interested. But one student in particular, man, she just dove in there. She came to me with a stack of research. And she was just and, – and really, I think part of it was they were researching things that directly affect their own families, their own grandparents, and their children – one day they'll have children, and they start researching these things, and they started wanting to get answers. And so this one particular student, um, she had began to research the water issues, and she found some 
she did some investigative journalism. She ended up finding some really jarring information about our area, and she had planned on being a dental hygienist, but she switched. Now she's um, she's attending a, one of our local universities, and she's um, going to be majoring in some kind of environmental degree. So there's definitely uh, a different trajectory for several of the students. And as far as I know, I had asked them to have a plan when they graduated, and I had helped them get their resumes ready and fill out scholarship applications. And I was just looking at uh, one of my students. She's she's uh, going to be a radiologist, and she just moved into her dorms. I saw a couple of them posting pictures of moving into their dorms. And as their teacher, it just makes your heart want to just, explode. It just makes you so happy to see them chasing after their dreams and believing in themselves. It's the the most incredible feeling. And I I have a funny feeling you'll be following these students for quite some time, kind of like, you know, the the mother bear and the cubs out there. (laughs) That's how I visualize this. That's really how I feel about them is in some strange way, there was a connection made there that I didn't anticipate because I'm really not a fan of, <laughs> it was a terrible thing to say, but I've just never been a person who's really about teenagers or, um, you know, I just never really thought I would feel invested, but, oh, man, they made me fall in love with them. And I, I'll tell you what, I I do have a son, he's 21, and he's, at OU right now. He's about to graduate. He's also going to go to law school. I'll just give him a little shout out here. Hey, Jackson, I love you. <laughs> but I, I would do anything for Jackson. I, I mean, middle of the night, if he called me and said, Mom, I need you, I would drop everything any day of the week and go do whatever he needs for me. And I feel the same way about this group um, that I spent the last year with. If one of them called me in the middle of the night, I'd be there for him. I'd just... Um, and I'll be cheering for them forever, no doubt. And I'm sure they will be too because of the time. I mean, it's it's amazing to me that with the virus and everything, your time was really cut off. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, if, if you were following social distancing and all that we've had to do, you know, your time in, in the classroom was kind of cut off. We were totally cut off, and it was just shocking because, Uh, Honestly, we were just starting to reach, we were at our peak, you know, we had just finished the podcast, we had gone to this big poetry museum um, opening, they had written on the walls of the poetry museum, we had gone to the ballet, it was just the most outrageous experience ever, and we were all feeling more like a family, I think, and that's what I told them from the beginning, is that we're going to take care of each other in here. Nobody else is going to take care of us. We're going to take care of each other. And so we formed this pretty uh, tight-knit family um, as a senior class. And I was just, we had, so the virus happened right before spring break. And I I don't think any of us realized when, that we weren't going to be able to come together again. Uh, We just felt like there were these, we were just building up to this climax Climax, which was going to be prom and then graduation, the celebration that you get to have with your family and your loved ones. And it just felt like we got cut off at the knees. And it was really devastating for a lot of them and for me because it was just really important to see those milestones in their lives before they went on to pursue their dreams and passions. And so when we went into spring break, there was the rumor we're not going to come back because of the virus. And I'm just going to tell you the truth. I, I really, I told my students, I said, ah, forget about it. Every year this happens. There's some outbreak of the swine flu or the bird flu. I said, don't worry about it. We'll be fine. And they knew better than I did because they said, oh, Ms. Phillips, I don't know. This seems a lot more serious than anything that's ever happened before, and I just, ah, and sure enough, you know, towards the end of spring break, we got the news that we wouldn't end the year together, and um, 
It was a hard, hard pill to swallow. I'm sure it was. And, you know, I think since our last interview, of course, I've followed you on Facebook and everywhere else. I I watch what you do for whatever reason. I don't know. I'm drawn to what you've been doing. (laughs) I'm not a stalker. I promise you I'm not a stalker, but I've never... I've never seen someone with, I don't know, the sense of humor that you have, the knowledge that you have, and the inspiration that you have pulled together this collective spirit within these seniors. Um, It's just been amazing to watch. And I I really think with with your sensibilities and, and now seeing, you know, seeing what's coming through, with your time with these students is, you know, there's a lot of social responsibility. And I see that in what you've done with them. And not only that, the responsibility to the Cherokee Nation, the responsibility to your family and everyone around you is is like a ripple effect. And I hope, you know, that they can take that all out into the world and pinpoint it as you were the one who started it. <laughs> oh, that's really nice. That's one of the nicest thing anybody's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. So thank you so much for that. I um I have a really strong spiritual life, and I think probably because of going to law school, I developed a really strong um, conviction about the separation of church and state. So while I have this really strong spiritual life that causes us a really like an overwhelming passion and joy for life. I definitely didn't step into the classroom with the intention of sharing that necessarily with the students, but I think despite um, myself, it, it bubbled over <laughs> because um, I certainly never would have um, brought prayer into my classroom other than my private prayer. I always, start the school day off. I have um, planning first hour, and I always start the school day off um, in prayer and and some study. And when I took the students to, uh, we went to the big poetry museum. Before we went to the poetry museum, we there's a, a little coffee shop and tea shop, and I bought all of the students had got a little cappuccino, and they recited poetry in the coffee shop. It was really cool. But uh, we were about to eat. And, of course, I wasn't going to ask them to pray before we ate because I didn't feel that was my responsibility. And they asked, the students asked if we could have a prayer before. And so that was really, that was pretty inspiring to me that the students were kind of picking up, even though I didn't, um, it wasn't my intent, they were kind of picking up on that spirit that I, I definitely feel is with me when I'm, um, in interacting with these with my people, and I call them my people because we're in Ader County. We're really kind of knitted together, and um, we have to look out for each other, just like I told them. And and that's really how things ended up was just everybody looking out for each other. At the beginning of the year, I wrote at the top of the board, "We are all in this together, and the time is now." And I just felt this real sense of urgency, and somehow, they, like little sponges, they just picked it right up. <laughs> and, uh, definitely, I, I would say in my life, I've had two spiritually um, life-changing moments. I mean, I've had a lot, but, but two that just really stand out. And one is when I went to Africa, and then the other is the experience I had with these students. Just overwhelming, spectacular, and something I'll never forget as long as I live. Are you going back next year or, or when school is ready to convene again? Are you taking on <laughs> <Yeah>. another class? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I said that it was a one year, one and done. And then I felt, it's really hard to explain, but I really felt that I owed the school at least one more year. And so I'm already back in the classroom. I am teaching under a shield and a mask, and I have eight feet social distancing taped off in the floor. I'm being as careful as I can. It would have been easy to quit before we had to go back and face this challenge that we're facing right now, 
But I, I just felt like if I quit, I would be letting myself down and I would be letting the school down. And I do believe that I'm where I'm supposed to be right now. But <laughs> if I do, and I have to be very careful to say, to make any definitive statements because those always end up getting turned upside down somehow by life. But um, my intent is that this is my last year and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'd start, I'd start um, doing that screenwriting project before I accepted the teaching job and, so my intention is to teach this one one last year and then go back to my books and maybe making movies. We'll see. And these students, um, how do you compare these new students to the former class? Well, it's a whole new experience. Um, they tr- These new students came in with a whole different – I mean, they kind of trusted me right off the bat. And – so it's really kind of shocking. I'm not having to go through all of the work I did last year of trying to prove myself and trying to get the students to realize I really was there for them. This new group, they kind of walked in the first day, and maybe it's because they heard from the last year's group or maybe they've been watching what we've been doing. But they came in, and they just had this whole different attitude They're I mean, one of them said that he loved me last week. So I'm starting off not having to prove myself to this group. So I'm just really excited. I'm sure it'll be a completely different experience, but I think it'll be just as exciting nonetheless. Well, you can just jump right into pushing them into success. (laughs) And I I know you will. You've kind of given me the the idea of what you're planning for your future as far as screen screen writing and making a movie of the book um, Now I Lay Me Down. Did you ever consider writing something funny? Because you're a funny woman. You write you're writing and and things that I've seen your commentary. You're a funny woman, and I really think that. You haven't had that opportunity to get that out into a book form. Hey, Delilah, am I your clown? Am I here to amuse you? <laughs> oh, yeah. that's um, <laughs> uh, I am. I am pretty funny. I think that it's not really that unusual in our area. Pretty much, if you live here, you better have a sense of humor, and you better be able to take some ribbing. And so, I definitely grew up um, around. Well, another thing is that uh, the Cherokee people are pretty much, that's kind of in our DNA, is that you don't, if you can't laugh at some things, you're going to cry. And so you better be able to find some humor and joy in things, even when they aren't ideal. Um, so I, I, actually my second book, um, It's Not That Hard To, has quite a few, it's mostly funny. And it has quite a few stories about, as you said, my my grand adventures traveling. I've had quite a few mishaps. I've had a lot of wardrobe wardrobe failures, and so that's if I have a funny book, it's definitely the the second book. Um, it's not that hard to, but I would love. It's on my list. I mean, I have quite a few books in me, so I'm not ready to cope just yet. I still have some things to do, but. Um, my next book after 2020 Visions is going to be my return to fiction. Um, if the Lord is willing, that's my that's my will is that I return to fiction and um, write and publish my my River book, which is basically ready to go. So I'm really excited about that. And then I really that book after that, I really want to spend some time just traveling down the Mississippi River. And visiting all of the towns that Mark Twain, Mark Twain wrote about in Life on the Mississippi and writing about life then and life now, kind of a comparison of the two. And I have an idea that would be a pretty funny book. But that's years down the road, maybe a couple of years. You never know, do you? <laughs> well, never know, Delilah. <laughs> no, you don't. You, you, I mean, it's just been great watching you stumble into this new um, career move and what what it has done, not only for you, but for this class of students. And 2020 Visions 
I think is a book like like I read on on your website that needs to be given as a gift. It needs to be out there to all the graduating um, seniors so that they can understand that, that there is an example and an inspiration to succeed, and you have led these students to where that point is, and it's it's just been an amazing thing to watch. So. The people can buy the book at readbooks.faith, correct? Yes, it's uh, readbooks.faith, and I think stumble is probably the best description of what I do through life. <laughs> I just stumble <laughs> through, and, <laughs> and wonderful things happen, and 2020 Visions is one of those things. Um, this group of students were born in the year of 9-11, and then... Um, they graduated the year of COVID-19. And so I really think that their story is just something inspirational for the, for the world. I think it's a story for the world that um, you can grow up in the most dire of circumstances. You can be born in a year of tragedy and graduate in a year of tragedy, and you can carry hope and joy with you and give that on to other people. And to me, they're the greatest inspiration. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Absolutely. I'm I'm just I'm gonna order my copy today and I highly recommend listeners go to readbooksby.faith. There's no dot com at the end or anything like that. It's readbooksby.faith, which I think is a genius way to use a URL. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I I really appreciate you taking your time to come back and I you know hopefully we'll do this maybe on a regular basis and not wait so many years or months in between time because it's always always an experience that I enjoy and I know my listeners do too so thanks so much and I hope your your success of these students I can't wait to see I, I just can't wait to read about it I can't wait to see what the coming years brings for them um, so thank you dear Joy Delilah thank you so much for supporting us and we'll all rise together you bet you bet so as everyone as you go out into this world this world right now is, is in a very tumultuous place but the one constant, I think, and, and, and something I think I've watched through faith is that you make this collective spirit. You make it. You are a part of it. And one of the most important things to do is to be kind to each other. And we'll close out now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.